Well, great to see you all. Hope your Thanksgiving was uh, a low-calorie episode, but I don't think it probably was. Matt, I had four pieces of pie, maybe five. Depends on how you count that last little nubbins. You know when you go back to the pie tin and there's those little nubbins? I love the nubbins. Anyways, I ate a lot of pie. But I did hike Saddle Mountain yesterday, so it all balances out in the end, right? Nope, not true. Okay. Hey, open your Bibles to Numbers uh, chapter 25. Numbers 25. And uh, by the way, I'm Michael. Um, I am one of the assistant pastors at the church. I actually haven't been in main service for like more than a month because I've been back with kids or doing a men's retreat or traveling or doing something. So it's nice to see you all. If you need a Bible, there's some really nice guys that'll hand you one. And uh, so one of the fun parts of being an assistant pastor is that when they ask you to teach, unless your boss tells you what to do, you kind of get to pick. And I'm reading through numbers right now, and there's some things that have just transpired recently that got me all excited about this particular thing. It's kind of a sad story, uh, but I think, there's a, I think there's a happy, happy's the right word, wrong word, maybe redemptive aspect to it. So I'm going to give you a bunch of background for where we're at in Numbers. Uh, where we find the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 25 uh, is right on the cusp of crossing the Jordan River into the promised land that God had, had long ago said to Abraham and to his descendants, this will be your land, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. I promised it to you with a, um, an unconditional covenant. In other words, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you this land. Now, it's really important to know, I'll just kind of tuck this away, that their enjoyment of the land, getting to live there and enjoy the prosperity and goodness that God would give them in the land that is called the land flowing with Milk and honey, right? That's just a metaphor. It wasn't actual rivers of milk. This wasn't Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's a metaphor for prosperity and blessing, um, good things that God would give. But their enjoyment of that land was conditional based on their um, obedience or faithfulness to the covenant that they had made with God at Mount Sinai. So the land was theirs, but if they didn't walk with him, they would either uh, suffer oppression, lack of rainfall, conquering, even up to deportation. It's kind of like this. Imagine you were a criminal and you owned a piece of property. You could hold title to that land, right? You could own a lot in Warrington or Astoria. But if you're locked up in, in jail or prison, do you get to enjoy it? No, you just get to pay taxes on it. That's all you got to do while it's there. So Israel could own the land, but they might not get to enjoy it depending on their obedience. That just matters for our story. But what you need to know is they have tried to go into this land once before 40 years earlier than where we find them in our story. As you may remember from watching Prince of Egypt or maybe reading your Bible, God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, and then through the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments, made this covenant, really almost like a marriage with God, where he said, I'll be your God. And they said, we'll be your people, and we'll keep our vows to each other. And then they journeyed on from there to a place called Kadesh Barnea, where they were supposed to go into the land. And you remember the story maybe where Moses sends out 12 spies, right? And says, tell us what the land's like. And they come back and they're like, hey, it's just like God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Check out these massive grapes that we had to carry on a pole between two guys. I mean, those are some big grapes. And they're like, man, that's great. Well, what's the downside? There's a downside. There's giants. And we're so tiny and we'll totally get killed. And there's no way we could go in it. Oh, so sad. And so they wuss out and they say, instead of, Trusting God and going in, we are pretty sure God just brought us here to kill us. And so, of course, that's not true. There's a whole story that happens right there. There's two spies who are like, no, no, we can do it. If God promised it, we can do it. We can trust him. 
Those guys are Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two guys. And so God says, here's the deal. You guys are all worried about getting killed. In fact, part of their complaint was our children. We can't go in. Think of the children. The children will be killed by the giants. And so God says to them, you're so worried about your kids. Here's what's going to happen. You're not going in. If you will not trust me, then you cannot go in and enjoy this land that I promised you. But you know what's going to happen? Those kids you are so worried about, they're going to go. Here's what will happen. For the next 40 years, everybody over the age of 20 is going to die. And so coming up to our story here for the last 40 years, it's been a death march. While the children of Israel wander around the wilderness watching people over the age of 20 die. Plop, plop, plop. Of course, God was doing good things for them during that time. He brought water for them from the rock. He uh, protected them. There's the miracle of manna every day. Food was provided for them by the Lord, right? Um, might have gotten a little monotonous after a while eating manna every single day. But at this point now, the people that have gathered on the edge of the Jordan River, you can look across the river and see Jericho. You can see the land God has promised you are all probably 60 or under, relatively young group, right? Isn't that young? Someone tell me that's true because I'm closing in on 50 and I want to believe that's young, prime, yeah, all right. Got some amens for that. So we got a, a younger group of people and they have just come off a three-game win streak. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but this can go right to your head. They'd been wandering in the wilderness, eating manna, and now all of a sudden they had tried to go towards the land. God was leading them and three armies uh, basically said, we're coming at you, yo. And so they beat the king of Arad and then they beat Sihon and then they beat um, Og, king of Bashan, who had a giant bed. The Bible actually talks about the size of his bed. It's in there. So anyway, they, they've won these battles and they're parked right on the edge of the Jordan River. And so the, the chapters that precede chapter 25, you ready for this? This is gonna be really insightful are chapters 22, 23, and 24. You might want to write that down. Here's what happens. There's another nation right there in that territory called the nation of Moab. And the Moabites were not on Israel's hit list. God didn't have plans for them to fight with Moab. That wasn't in the land that they were going. But the Moabites are freaked out because they've seen the Israelites just defeat three consecutive nations. So they're really concerned. And so the king of Moab is a guy named Balak. And Balak decides, hey, military action against Israel is unsuccessful. God seems to give them victory over these nations. Maybe I can get God to curse them. That seems to be the key. And so he hires a guy named Balaam. Does that name ring a bell for some of you guys, this guy named Balaam? What a weird character. I have so many questions when I read the story of Balaam in 22 through 24. He is evidently some kind of a prophet of God. He hears from God. We see him, we see God speak to him in these three chapters. And Balak sends to him and says, hey, if I give you a bunch of money, will you come here and curse the people of Israel? And so Balaam says, well, here's the deal. I don't work that way. I do, I'm, I'm giving, these are Michael's words. I do like money. Even if you gave me hypothetically your whole household of silver and gold, I couldn't say anything except what God tells me to say. He says, I've got to give true messages from God. So he initially goes and asks the Lord, should I go? And the Lord's like, no. And then Balaam goes back and tells Balak's messengers, I'm not supposed to go with you, sorry. And Balak comes back and is like, man, you don't understand how much I can make it rain for you. You really should come. So Balaam goes back and asks God one more time, can I go? And the Lord's like, okay, you can go, but you can only tell him what I tell you to say. So off 
Balaam goes with Balak. And I'm just going to skip ahead with you to uh, chapter 24 and give you the synopsis. So up to this point, each time he's offered these sacrifices, he's asked for a message from God, and instead of cursing God's people that he can see from these various high places in Moab, these are probably places of pagan worship, um, he looks out over the nation of Israel and pronounces blessing instead. And so in 24, we're going to get down to the last one. So now Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel. So he did not resort to divination as before. Instead, he turned and looked out toward the wilderness. And when he saw the people of Israel camped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him. And this was the message he delivered. And he pronounces this whole blessing. I just want to point something out to you that's so cool is that what the enemy intended, listen, this is, goes right with what we've been learning in Romans 8. What the enemy intended to curse Israel, God turned into a blessing. Isn't that cool? How aware of this whole situation were the Israelites? Zero. They had no idea. Bro is down there picking up his manna day after day, going back inside, eating his manna stew, his little manna oatmeal, his manna cotty, whatever it was that they were, they were cooking. Doesn't have any idea that God is protecting him and his whole family and his whole tribe and his whole nation just going about his daily life, the enemy trying to hurt him and God turning those things into a blessing. Isn't that cool? I just think about our own lives, you guys. If you are a Christian, if you've been born again and the Spirit of God lives in you and you're in his family, you have no idea the protection that you're under. Not because you're so great or good or you, you know, you've been such a good little boy, but because you're in Christ. Man, how can the enemy come against Jesus? He's so much greater, right? He's the, he's the strong man that can, that can bind the enemy that when he shows up on the, before the demoniac, do you remember this story? This guy who they couldn't bind, he's filled with so many demons, legion demons. They freak out when they see Jesus. Oh, please don't hurt us. You know what the enemy would try against you? He can't succeed in. He can't succeed in hurting you. I love this, that the curses that the enemy would pronounce can't alight on you without cause. There's actually a proverb about this, 26.2, that a, a curse without cause won't alight. I just hope that's a freeing thing for you. Sometimes Christians, we can get freaked out by the very real spiritual battle that we're in. The Bible says this in Ephesians 6, that we're in a spiritual battle and that there's armor. But sometimes people can be afraid in that. Man, the position that we have in Christ is one of victory. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. As long as we stay in Christ, he is our safety and protection, and the enemy can't overcome that. I hope you'll know that. You don't have to be afraid, Christian. Don't be stupid, but you don't have to be afraid. We are in a position of victory. And so, uh, so Balaam winds up blessing the people of Israel. And it says at the end of chapter 24, Balak, the king, remember, that hired him, is really hot about this because his whole plan was to pronounce curses, and instead he blessed him. So um, Balak gets mad at Balaam. And in verse 12 of chapter 24, Balaam says to Balak, don't you remember what I told your messengers? I said, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, hint, hint, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord. I told you that I could say only what the Lord says. Now I'm returning to my own people, but first I'll tell you what the Israelites will do to your people in the future. And he actually gives a prophecy that Israel's going to conquer Moab. And then you skip all the way down to verse 25, and it says, then Balak and Balaam returned to their homes. And if only that were all that happened at the end of verse 25. But unfortunately, chapter 25, verse 1 happens. 
Here's what it says. While the Israelites were camped at uh, Acacia Grove, or you might have Shittim is the, the word there, but it means Acacia Grove, so they're right across the river. Some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. Now, does this seem odd to you? If you have a nation that wants to go to war against another nation, is there typically like a hookup culture between those two nations? No, normally you don't sleep with your enemies. That's not typical. So the question I have is why are the Moabite women engaging in some relationship with these men? What's that? How does that go? How do you go from like, please curse these guys, I want them dead, to I don't know, maybe we'll have relationships with each other? Well, the Bible tells us how this happened. If you flip over to chapter 31, uh, verse 16, we find out that Balaam didn't just leave and go to his home. Chapter 31, verse 16 uh, I'll read it from the NLT. These are the very ones who followed Balaam's advice. Or what do you have if you don't have an NLT? What's it say there? Got a different, got a different language there? Does it say followed Balaam's advice? Anybody with an ESV on Balaam's advice? Okay, the idea is Balaam, apparently, before he left town, said, look, I can't curse him, but I've got a plan that maybe if you'll pay me, uh, you could execute instead. Here's what it is. Balaam's advice, and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. These are the ones who caused the plague to strike the Lord's people. Evidently, Balaam's advice was try to get these guys to come and worship your God. Engage in relationships with them that are illicit, and you can get them, listen, to curse themselves. Although the enemy cannot curse you, cannot curse God's people. His plan will get you and I to step out of God's will into a place where we can bring a plague onto ourselves. I think there's many things that plague our lives. Thanks. I got bad puns today. I'm ready. I'm ready with bad puns. Because we have chosen to step out of the will of God and brought trouble on ourselves. Deadly. And so it's important to me to know what is God's will and how do I walk in it? so that I can avoid that. One more verse for you, Revelation chapter two. Sorry, I'm trying to flip pages and hold this mic and I'm not good at it. So uh, Revelation chapter two, verse 14 also alludes to Balaam and, and this whole episode. Yeah, the Lord speaking to a church here in Pergamum says, I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. I love that language. Balaam showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. And that's a, a teaching apparently still in the church today. So flip back to Numbers 25. So this explains why all of a sudden these women who otherwise would have been the enemies of uh, Israel decided to go over and engage in these relationships. Now, I wonder how this went down. You're going to have to forgive me. This is a little bit of imagination on my part. So you're an Israelite guy, and uh, I think we can flip the principle around, and it could have been men, but it's a story, it's women, so we'll go with that. You're an Israelite guy, and you have been wandering around in the wilderness in a relatively, you know, smallish community. Anybody go to a small high school where you all knew each other? Maybe a few of you, like you, a few of you had dated before, and it's like, there's really nothing for me here. You know, I sometimes wonder if Israel was that way. <laughs> Maybe you're a, a young Israelite man, you've been wandering around the wilderness eating manna all the time, and... You're a little bit cocky, you can have some wins, but man, the, the dating pool is small. And one day, some new people show up. And the people of Israel wandering around the wilderness probably weren't real sophisticated. Maybe they're wearing like worn out REI hiking gear. And here comes this lady 
and she looks nice. She's been shopping, man, she's got her hair all done, she smells good, and she's like, hi, my name's Cosby. You, I'm just nice to meet you, Zimri. It's, hi, I'm Zimri. <laughs> I've been out in the wilderness for a long time. Yeah, you, you know what? Some friends and I are getting together, and uh, we're going to eat some food. Yeah, that's cool. I've, I've been eating a lot of manna. Oh, we, we're not eating manna. Oh, man, we've got some good stuff cooking. Some tasty meat. Meat's back on the menu where I'm from. You should come. It's just a party. We're just hanging out. Oh, okay. And so Zimri goes back, talks to his guys like, man, I don't know, dude, this lady Cosby showed up. She is so cute. And bro, there's going to be meat. I'm going. So off he goes, and it's, a, it's not just a party. It's a worship session. They're worshiping Baal, who is a fertility god in that region, probably maybe even at one of those high places that uh, Balaam was at. And uh, fertility worship involved uh, sexuality as a part of their church service, essentially. And you can see how this could be really appealing to people. I mean, church can be boring for some people. But if you said, at our church, we eat a lot of meat, we party, and everybody has sex, you can see how people would show up for that, right? I know, it sounds weird to say. That's true. I'm telling you, this is historically what happened. And so these guys go, you know, it's an invitation, it's a pretty girl, there's some food, you show up, it's all very exciting, and then all of a sudden, this is happening. And this was a massive problem. This wasn't just a few people. This is a lot of people. The Bible says 24,000 people ultimately die from the plague, a judgment that uh, came on them because of this sin. I draw out that little bit of imagination only to say that this is a play I see the enemy still running for the people of God. Um, Sometimes, you know, your own marriage can become, so I hear I've not been married, can become a little routine. It can feel like you've been wandering in the wilderness and just eating manna. And there's somebody that's more interesting at that moment that comes along, more exciting, that's just inviting you to something. You know, it's not like I'm having a relationship. We're just going to dinner. It's just, it's just a really good uh, all-you-can-eat uh, steak dinner, and I'm just going to go hang out with her. We're just going to talk. Long ago, when I was a young pastor at this church, I've been here for about 20 years now, I guess, there was a, 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 a lady and a, a man and a wife, and the guy couldn't understand. He's dead now, so you don't know who he is. Don't try to guess, but... He couldn't understand why his wife didn't think it was a good idea for him to go to the bar and have these friendships with other women. Just couldn't figure it out. He thought it was just, we're just having a drink. We're just being friends. It's fine. She wasn't okay with that for some weird reason. She just had that strange, that strange standard. Happens. Sometimes I've watched uh, as a single person, other single people who are following the Lord, and they get lonely. It feels like they're wandering around in the wilderness and They've been at Coastline, it's not a very big place, and they've looked around and they can't find anybody. And then the enemy, it seems to me, sends someone along who's really nice. He's so kind. He just pays attention to you. He actually asks you out, unlearned like the Christian men who have no courage, evidently. Or you're a man, and same thing, and this woman comes along, she's so exciting and sophisticated and interesting, and she just invites you to dinner, and um, things go from there. And I watch people where they are pressing in and running the race, following Jesus. And because of the time that they're waiting, the wilderness wandering, if you will, decide to follow after a Cosby, you know. Cosby show turns out to be a bad idea. No? Okay. Too much? Too soon? All right. I'm trying. Man, I, I really believe that this could be a warning today for someone. I really believe it. If you're here and your desire is to be married or you're discontent in your own marriage or relationship, um, be so careful. Be so careful. That is a, a difficult place to be. I'm not trying to make that sound like it's easy. 
Um, but I am saying that you need to be on guard because the enemy, while he can't curse you himself, he can get you to curse yourself by choosing relationships that are not good for you. How many of you have watched someone go through that exact process? Yeah, look around. If you're, if you're in that spot, you're like, how, how dangerous can it be? I mean, there's probably more hands that could go up than have. It's so important. And I don't know that the folks who first went, like I say, I doubt that the pitch for the people coming to the camp was like, hey, we're going to go and eat. Uh, by the way, we read elsewhere in Psalms that part of this worship not only was sexual in nature, but they ate food that was sacrificed to the dead. So this sounds creepy. So I don't think someone showed up and was like, hey, we're having a sacrifice to the dead. You want to come? Most people are like, nah, it sounds weird. I'm out. It all starts with, watch the progression, verse 2. These women invited them to the sacrifices. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshiped the gods of Moab and in this way joined in the worship of Baal, or the traditional translation I like better, became followers of Baal Poor. Look at that progression. An invitation, pretty innocent, right? Nothing wrong there. A little food, right? And then all of a sudden there's worship involved and pretty soon you find yourself worshiping demons and eating sacrifices to the dead. Not what you set out to do. It was just dinner. But look at that progression. Man, you've got to watch out for the things that the enemy would say. Everybody said to Eve, oh, you won't surely die. She looked at the fruit, saw that it was good. She looked, did this analysis and decided, it was, it won't, it'll work out for me. And she was wrong and brought death to her family. And so in this case, this brings about death in the camp of the children of Israel. Such a sad episode. And right on the cusp of entering into the promised land. That's part of what gets me at the drama is they're looking across the river at where they're supposed to go. And right then, 24,000 of them, it says, die in this plague. Never get to go in. 40 years of wandering, 40 years of following God, 40 years experiencing some victory in their life. And right on the cusp, they curse themselves and 24,000 die. Sad. I wonder if that happens to some of us. Be careful. Watch out. Now, some of you may point out to me, if you're thinking of your biblical history, that not all Moabites turn out to be so problematic, right? Can you think of a Moabite who's got a pretty righteous uh, lineage? What do you got? Yeah, Ruth. Man, Ruth is a Moabitess, right? She's in the lineage of Jesus. Turns out to be a pretty great lady. So if you're thinking, well, Michael, maybe it's still okay. Maybe I could date a Moabite. Maybe I need a Moabite in my life. Maybe that's God's will for me. You might be right. You might be right. But I'll tell you how you can tell a Ruth from a Moabite that's going to get you worshiping Baal of Peor. Think about Ruth's life. Ruth showed up on the scene, and Boaz was able to watch her life for a while. This was a woman who was laying down her life for someone else. She was engaged. She had already decided, your God will be my God. She'd already made her conversion, if you would. She's faithfully serving. This is not a woman who's making a play or doing anything else. You're able to watch her life and see that she's committed to God, and she's being faithful to him. So that's how that story goes down. So I'm just telling you, if, you are, if a new guy shows up at church and you're interested, watch his life before you hang out with him, before you go out with him. Find out, is he a man who lays down his life for others? Is he faithful? Is he committed to God on his own apart from you asking or encouraging him? If it's a lady that you're interested in, watch her life. Find out, is she committed to Christ? Is she walking with him on her own? Do you have to drag her to church? Do you, are you the one trying to get her to read the Bible with you. Find out, does she have a relationship on her own? And if she does, well, great. Maybe that's, that's God's plan. But man, far too often, it's just someone who shows up and is kind of scoping, 
You know, they're kind of interested, and pretty soon they're dragging people off. Oh, man, watch out for that. And if you're one of those people that's here to drag people off, please leave. And I mean that with all of my heart. Please do not hurt the people of God. It breaks my heart as a pastor to watch families come apart and to watch uh, people get dragged away from following Christ by relationships they really shouldn't be involved in. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? If you have questions about that, if you feel like something I've said is unclear or too harsh, I'd be happy to talk to you about it if I've misspoken in some way from up here. But in verse three now, keep moving here. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. So the Lord issued the following command to Moses. Seize all of the, NLT has ringleaders. Um, the New American has the leaders. Do you have leaders there in your, verse four? Chiefs of the people, right. It's the idea is he's saying, you need to, the, the, this is crazy. So it wasn't just the, the rabble or random folks who got involved alone. It was leaders of clans. This is the leadership of Israel that had gone over and engaged in these illicit relationships and joined themselves to the worship of Baal Peor. And so the Lord issues this very drastic command. Seize the ringlers, execute them before the Lord in broad daylight so his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Are you guys throwing verses? I see you are. That's cool. Man, those guys are good. I gave them zero Warning, so if they're getting a verse up, hey, bonus. First Timothy chapter five, verse 20 says this about elders. He says, he says the elders and the tense is really important here. The New American draws us out. Who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. The idea is that if you've got a leader, not who fails, that's all of us. Church is, here's a little for you. Church is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints, right? Yeah. But a hospital is a place where people go to get better, right? If a guy showed up at the hospital who was sick and said, hey, I'm here to spread COVID to all of your patients, you would kick him out. If he's there and he just wants to get well, well, welcome. That's what we do here in the hospital. Um, sorry, I, that, when I mention COVID, I realize everyone's like, what is he going to say? I just mean it as it, you can replace that with a disease you don't have political feelings about if it helps you. Just saying a hospital is a place to get better. You can come in sick, but it's that you're there to get better, not to get other patients sick. If you're doing that, you need to leave. Church is like that. So if you've got a leader not who has a problem and is trying to work through that, but is continuing in sin, trying to justify it, trying to live that, then you, the Bible says to rebuke them publicly, to deal with it drastically because it will hurt the church. This is close to me right now, just in the last week in our own uh, Calvary circle, there's a man who's a, a pastor, I would consider him my friend, and uh, he just found, just was discovered in a in um, an illicit relationship. He's married, he has children with a woman that's not his wife. And so his, uh, he was exposed and he resigned and the, the board accepted his resignation. And so this morning, my friend who's an assistant pastor is, is preaching a very difficult message to his church about the work of Jesus continues and is not undone by this. But can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine if uh, tomorrow you come in at, or next Sunday you come to church and it's me or Pastor Stephen or Marcus or Chris and they say, you know, we, we accepted Michael's resignation. We, we found him at Annie's last night, you know, and then he was off with somebody and so he's not going to be here. And you're going to start thinking like, well, I like that. Hopefully I like that guy and was his life for real? And what about those sermons that he preached? And has he, he's been with our children. What, what's that guy's, in, I mean, there's a lot of scars that happen to churches when leaders fall. And so the Bible says, man, you want to deal with that really clearly. And I, I bring that up because there's a problem in our Christian culture today where often the sins of leaders are swept under the rug and allowed to continue sometimes in the name of 
uh, grace or in the name of, um, sometimes it's just, oh, God's doing so much for that person, and we can't, we can't deal with it. And that's not what the Bible says to do. He says, in this case, execute those ringleaders in, in God's presence. God is a holy God and won't tolerate um, sin. Now, now, if you're in this, I got to pause here because sometimes people are like, wait a minute, you talk about grace and then <laughs> it's a God who forgives. And then you say, execute the ringleaders in broad daylight. Like, I feel like there's a lot of tension between these two. This really comes down to the metaphor again of the guy in the hospital. If you're a guy who goes to the hospital and you're trying to get people sick, you got to go. You're a problem. If you've come there to get well, you're welcome. Does that make sense? Is that metaphor check out for you? Okay, same thing. If you're in church and you're like, man, I got problems and I want to be healed. I'm, I'm repenting from those things. I need Jesus to change my life. Welcome to the club. You are fitting right in with all of us. If you're here and you're like, I have this issue in my life and it's sin and I would love it if you would all just be fine with it and like kind of pat me on the back about it and celebrate it with me and tell me I'm just fine, then you need to leave. You're a problem. The Bible says sin like that leavens the whole lump. And if you want to read a story about that in 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthian church had a guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law and the church was like good with it. And Paul says, no, you kicked that guy out. That's not okay. This wasn't a guy who was struggling and trying to get free. This is a guy who's like, no, my lifestyle is this and it's just fine. No. So again, we have leaders who continue in sin who are you know, abusive, power-hungry, greedy, involved in sexual immorality, and they're trying to justify that and continue that, the Bible says you get rid of those guys. Guys, money, sex, and power are the big three plays that the enemy has been using to get Christians to curse themselves, the people of God to curse themselves throughout time. And go back and read about this. Watch out for those three. We find out that Balaam's motive for doing what he did and giving that advice was what? Money. Bro wanted to get paid. Get that cash. And so he gave this advice. And you know what happens? I didn't read it, but in chapter 31, verse 8, Balaam dies. Balaam got to enjoy his cash for like a few days because after this episode goes down, they do go to war with Moab and Balaam loses his life. A man who was a prophet of God, who heard from God, lost his life because of money. And here a bunch of people lose their lives because of sex and sometimes it's power and, and on it. goes. got to watch over our own for these temptations the enemy would send. Now, the Bible inserts this very graphic episode, and I would just say this is one of the reasons we have children's ministry, but here, you, here, they, here we are. So to give an illustration of how blatant this sin was, at the moment when God has issued this command to Moses to execute these leaders, it says that there was sort of a revival moment in Israel. So verse 5, Moses ordered Israel's judges, each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worship to Baal of Peor. Just then, so think about this. Imagine that we had a service here, and let's say it's me. I'll just pick on me. Let's say I have fallen into sin, and the elders have had to remove me, and we're all weeping. You know, the rest of you are gathering. You're weeping like, Lord, we just are so sad that part of our body has been involved in this. We ask you, Lord, for purity in ourselves. You're just weeping over this, right, over our sin. Just then, at that moment, at that moment, just then, one of the Israelite men, we'll find out in a little bit down here, his name is Zimri, Zimri brought a Midianite woman into his tent. Her name is Cosby. So Zimri and Cosby. Right before the eyes of Moses and all the people, as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. So imagine again, you've got this revival service going on, and some guy grabs a woman and takes her out to go hook up with her during that service. Can you feel in yourself the anger that you'd feel towards that? Like, that's wrong always. But now, in front of everybody, 
When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, grandson of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he jumped up and said, oh, no, you just didn't. That's not in there. I added that part. And left the assembly, and he took a spear and rushed after the man into his tent. And Phinehas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So what's happening is exactly what you think is happening when Phinehas runs in with his spear, and he shish him. So the plague against the Israelites were stopped. Verse, end of verse 8. But not before 24,000 people had died. Oof. That's one way to make your point. Man, you guys are not going for any of my puns. I... <laughs> Phineas did not take a poll to find out what he should do. He took a spear and he made a point. Got right to the heart of the matter. Man, you guys, I'm telling you, I'm going to have to work harder. I will not be deterred by your lack of enthusiasm for bad puns. There's a time when we must deal harshly with sin. And the reason is because if we don't, you guys, if we don't, sin will deal harshly with us. 24,000 people died, but stopped at the moment that they dealt with the sin in their camp. And that can happen in your life and mine. There could be death that you and I are reaping, things that are plaguing us because of compromise, because of places that we're involved in, things we shouldn't be. But when you're ready to deal with that, man, God can stop that plague in your life. Bible gives examples of this. I read the one from 1 Timothy chapter 5. But what does Jesus say in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30? He says, you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you, a man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if your right hand, even your good hand, causes you to sin, you should go to therapy and you should concoct a plan to keep your right hand. Is that what he says? And he says, cut it off and throw it from you. Now, Jesus is not actually asking us to maim ourselves or none of us would be here with eyes, hands, or feet. But he's saying, you've got to be drastic with sin or sin will be drastic with you. Your measures can't be half. And how often do we do this? Okay, Lord, I sat in church. I got uncomfortable. Yes, I'm convicted about this thing. I'm gonna manage it. I'm just gonna go to Cosby. I'm gonna tell her, Cosby, look, I know we've had this relationship and I just... I can't go with you anymore to the bell of poor thing. Okay, yeah, we can meet. We could probably meet up sometimes for drinks or, you know, we can probably text a little bit, but I probably just can't go with you to the ball of poor. We'll just manage our relationship down. Maybe I'll see you when I'm picking up manna. Just give you a quick wave. No, the Bible says you cut off that hand. Delete that number. You get a new phone if you have to. You blow up your social media account, whatever you got to do. If there's people in your DMs that shouldn't be there and you know it, you've got to block them. Get off the app. Do what you have to do. Be drastic. But it'll be embarrassing. It'll be painful. There'll be drama that comes from that. Yeah, it's better than dying. Do you think when you read the story that, that folks looking back at the deaths of 24,000 people wish that they might have acted more seriously or drastically earlier? Do you think? Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine, but they didn't. These are people that they knew that were dead. Dead because of compromise and undealt with sin. I'll also note that they weren't able to move on into the promised land of abundant life that God had promised to them until they dealt with this thing. And you'll see this pattern as the children of Israel move forward. It's under Joshua, and they move into the land. They conquer Jericho. God says, touch nothing from that place. And a guy's like, oh, but these bars are pretty. And he hides them in his tent. And the children of Israel lose their next battle and can't move on until they deal with the sin that's in their own camp. Now, this is not a sermon designed for us to run around and rummage around in each other's lives. 
again, everybody comes with problems. If you're here and you think you're perfect, also please leave because you're wrong and you'll just be really frustrating. Uh, Self-righteous people are that way. But it is, a, a, it is a message that says, you guys, if there's hidden sin in your tent, if you're taking Cosby into your tent and you're doing it and you know it and you know it's wrong and you don't care, then you've got to deal with that or it will deal with you and you'll become a problem to the whole. You've got to deal with it. God today, I believe, is warning some of us to avoid a plague. Kill it. Put a spear through it. Be done with it today. If you've got a besetting sin and you're really struggling, then this is not really that message for you. But I'll just tell you, you're welcome. And you've got a lot of people who would love to help you on that journey. Welcome to our club of struggling people. You're welcome to do it. You're welcome to struggle here against those things, to walk with Jesus. Man, Romans chapter 6 was really on my heart with all this. We've just got through it a few weeks ago where he says, man, we get to reckon our old man to be dead. And I thought about, um, I thought about Zimri and Cosby and how there was a time to take that man and say, he's, he's dead. We're, we're done with Zimri. We're done with this whole situation, and we put a spirit through it. So I'm just going to read you a quick snippet from Romans, and then we'll, we'll move ahead. This is Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 6. We know that our old selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. I really love the NLT's translation there. It's very helpful. So sin might lose its power. That is, it's right to dominate you, to control you. It doesn't mean that sin won't try to influence you. It does mean that its power to dominate you is broken when you come to Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he'll never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should look at this language, consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So I'm gonna take a quick segue here and talk about this. If you have besetting sin in your life, how do you get free from it? Well, first I'll say, Often it is a process, a process that's reflected by individual decisions like this one. Reckon yourself to be dead. Consider yourself to be dead. So in my life, when I've had things that are addictive, uh, usually my pattern of failure is pretty profound, right? You've tried a little bit. You had a new program. You had a new idea, and you pushed yourself into that for a little bit, and then you failed. Anybody identify with this in some way? Dude, only, only 10 of us. You guys are really living great lives. A bunch of liars. Okay, anyway, so why is that why is that, that way? Because in, in our, on our own, we can't succeed. And at that moment, the enemy says to me in my mind, he says, well, you're never going to change. This is just part of who you are, and this is how it's always going to be until Jesus comes, and you might as well just settle it. You might as, why are you even fighting? You know you're going to fail eventually. Why don't you just give in to this thing right now? Does that tape sound like any? Okay. No, man, I'm so, you guys are just not bold. Okay, anyways, I'm saying I'm pretty sure this is human experience from people that I talk to when they're honest over coffee. It is so important at that moment to know that what the enemy's saying to you is a lie. He's not telling you the truth. He can no longer dominate your life. He no longer has the power to rule you. So his move is influence primarily through lies. And so what he tells you is you're still a slave. Hey, look, look at the pattern of your life. That means you're a slave. But what he's wrong about, it is, the pattern's true. That's true. I mean, you can look at the historical facts and say, yeah, that's, that's in fact true. But who you are now is not who you were before Jesus. You have a whole new power, a whole new dynamic, 
a whole new person living inside you who cannot and will have nothing to do with that old life. And the key is just to learn to let him be your new master. So step one is to say, I consider myself to be dead to that thing. And then as soon as you say it, you're like, what is this? Some kind of positive self-talk thing I'm getting into, like positive confession, I'm gonna will myself. No, you're saying what's actually true. You're saying the first step is I'm actually not a slave. I'm a Christian. I have the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and I don't have to live this way. Yeah, I'm not doing a good job of learning how to walk with him, but I don't have to. I will tell you, for me, that was a red-letter day when I was on a Mexico trip and Hassan Vegas was preaching from Romans 6 in Spanish, and I was just destroyed about something in my life. I'm like, I'm never going to change, Lord. And so all I'm doing is following along with the text and reading Romans 6. I'm like, I'm free. I'm actually free. I may not be living like I'm free, but I'm actually free. And all I've got to do is to learn how to live like that. There's a, um, I got time. The lies pastor tells himself, I got time. <laughs> That's a story I really, really like about elephants and how they train them. Anybody ever heard about elephants and how they train elephants? Good, then the story will hit. Okay, a couple of you know. Okay, so anyway, apparently when you're a baby elephant, never been one, that they take a baby elephant and they put a chain around its ankle and they stake it to the ground. That baby elephant will strain against that chain until it cuts into their foot and there's pain and agony. And eventually that baby elephant will give up because it's learned by experience that I am a slave to that chain. And every time I pull against it, I just fail over and over again. And why hurt myself? Why make it difficult? It just hurts. I'm a slave. Well, over time, that baby elephant continues to eat food, and it grows from a baby elephant into a giant, massive elephant that has all kinds of power it never had before when it was a baby elephant. But now, because that elephant has been conditioned to believe in its head that it is a slave to that thing around its ankle, they can take a rope, just a dumb little rope, tie it around the ankle of that huge elephant, and that uh, elephant will just sit there docile. Not because it lacks power to run free, but because it believes in its head that it's still a slave to the thing around its ankle. But it's changed. It's not the same as it was. And if we could coach that elephant, we would say, elephant, I'm glad you've come to me for therapy. Let me tell you about the power that have now as a giant elephant. You're no longer a baby elephant. You have freedom. Exercise your power, my friend, and walk in the freedom of being an adult elephant, right? And we probably would sound ridiculous, but if the elephant can learn that, it can go, oh, I've been free this whole time ever since I became a big elephant. That's you and me. When you went from the kingdom of darkness where you were a slave to sin, you're right, you couldn't. You could pull all you wanted and you're just going to get snapped back every time. But now, but now with the Holy Spirit inside of you, having become a new creation, old things having passed away and new things having come, you can learn to live free. And the change happens here, which is why Romans 12 says it's to be transformed by the renewing of your mind or learning to think differently about who you are in Christ. And this is step one in that process, Romans 6. I consider myself to be dead to fill in that blank for you, that website, that substance, that relationship. I'm no longer a slave. That's what God says. And when the enemy says, yeah, but look at your track record, you say, yeah, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at what God said because he tells the truth. And I'm banking on that. And that is a step of faith. Lord, let us live in that today. May this be the word of freedom for us. Continuing on verse 12. So he says, so don't let sin control the way you live. 
Do not give in to sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer is your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. This is true. Number two, I will just tell you, this is personal advice and experience. I can back it up from scripture, but don't fight this fight alone. If you have something you're going through, man, you've got a family of people here in the hospital with you, some of who are dealing with the same stuff, who would love to be your allies in that fight. And I've had things with my, some of my close friends where I will text them like, I need prayer right now for this. And they pray for me. And I'll tell you from my own experience, that has been a huge, huge piece of victory. The track record on that is profound when I'll enlist the aid of the body of Christ in the fight in which I find myself. Too often, I think we're trying to do it all by ourselves. Like the doctors and nurses are coming in, you're like, no, 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 I got this. I'll beat cancer. I got this. No, accept the aid of the people in the hospital who are there to help you. And then you all get to rejoice together. It's really fun. Yeah, guys, I, oh man, I wish I could convince everybody to do that. It'd be so, it's so neat when you have people. Man, what is uh, this little ministry? What's it called? I think it meets on Tuesdays. Uh, called, what is it, Breakthrough Stephen? Is that the name of that? I've heard it. There's, yeah, there's people getting together for that very purpose. Say, hey, I'm looking for change in my life in these ways, and I want people to walk with me. And if you have questions about that, you can see the handsome bald man right back there with the giant beard. Steve leads that ministry. Man, I wish, I wish that our Israelites would have said, man, this is dangerous. I'm not going. I don't have to go. I'm staying put, and I'm trusting the Lord. I'm going to eat that manna and skip that sacrifice I'm going to wait for the Lord to provide a man for me who loves Christ. I'm going to wait for the Lord to provide a woman for me who loves Christ. I'm not going with Cosby. Cost him his life. Deadly. One more, a few more things on sexual sin that I think are worth reading. Um, Proverbs chapter 6. I know I'm beating this horse pretty hard today. I did feel like we were supposed to, and also the, the story with my friend has just really been on my mind. I've been praying for that church and praying for myself and realizing that You and I are made of the same things and can fall into these same traps like the Israelites did. Uh, Proverbs chapter six, starting in verse 25, says, don't lust for her beauty. Don't let her coy glances seduce you. Skipping down to verse 27, I love this language he uses. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So is the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go Unpunished Excuses might be found for a thief who steals because he's starving, but if he's caught, he must pay back seven times what he's stolen, even if he has to sell everything in his house. But the man who commits adultery is an utter fool. Listen to this. He destroys himself. Man, if you're in a relationship, you need to end. Today, decide to do it. I heard one more story on this, and then I'll move ahead. Um, a guy who, a pastor who had been in, in an illicit relationship for some time, and Another pastor was interviewing after it was all over and, and said, how did you even get up and preach? How did you do this? And the guy says, here's how it would go for me. Before Sunday, I'd be under such uh, conviction about my relationship. And I'd be sitting there and then I would make these promises and I'd say, God, Monday, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna deal with it. And it would give me just enough release, relief of the cognitive dissonance in my mind that I could preach the sermon. And then by Monday, I'd received all of the praise of the people who said, oh, hey, great job, pastor. Oh, the Lord really spoke to me. Then I would think, ah, the Lord's really using me. I guess I don't need to do anything about that. 
that cycle makes sense to me. There's times where I say, oh, yeah, Lord, I'm going to deal with that at some point, but not today. Today. Deal with it today, or sin will deal harshly with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, flee sexual immorality. For all of our sins a man commits are outside the body, but when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. Joseph gives us such a good example of that when Potiphar's wife is coming onto him, he wriggles out of his jacket and runs. Man, sexual sin is not one of these sins to be managed or to stand there and show your spiritual power. It's one that we are commanded by God to run from because it is so dangerous. Run from it. And looking back to Balaam, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Many who have wanted to be rich have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Two of those are deadly sins illustrated in our story today. So if I ended there, I suppose we would all leave depressed, um, which I'd prefer not to do, not just because it's not fun, because it isn't actually totally true. I suppose listening to this, I've thought about this, we could be in one of probably three or four different camps. You could be a person who is, um, I would say, in a dangerous spot where this is a word of warning from the Lord for you and to me to say, hey, Michael, be on guard. The enemy can't curse you, but he can get you to curse himself. And he's liable to do it in a way that looks pretty attractive. Watch out for that. Watch out for that. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So if that's you, take that warning from the Lord that the enemy has a strategy to bring you down. Don't fall for it. Wait for the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting or changing shadow. I missed that quote up a little bit. And the verse before it says, don't be deceived. In other words, you and I are the kind of people that can be deceived into thinking that there's a good gift that I can have that doesn't come from God. Don't believe it. It might look attractive, but it could kill you. Number two, you may be somebody who's in the middle of that situation right now. And I can just tell you this, you need to get out, run, cut off that right hand, do whatever you have to do to get free because it can kill you and plague your life in ways you cannot imagine. You've heard it from the pulpit many times. I love the, the quote, which is to say, sin has this way of always taking you further than you wanted to go. You know, I wonder if Zimri didn't intend to end up where he ended up. He just wanted a meal with a nice lady. and got a lot further than he wanted. Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. And it will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Any of us who've touched addiction know that. And it will always cost you more than you wanted to pay. Cost him his life. Cost 24,000 Israelites their life. If you're in that situation, you need to decide today to deal with it. And I would say this to you. I plead with you. Before you leave, find someone, pray with them about it. Just put that mark in the ground so that you can't walk out that door and the enemy can say, oh, that was just a guy laying on the guilt. You're fine. Go on. You can manage this. Don't do it. Draw a stake to say, today I'm reckoning myself and I want to walk in what's right. Save your life. The third group, and I suppose this really would hit all of us if you were to take this as an illustration of various kinds of horrible sins that we've all probably participated in, you may feel right now a great deal of condemnation, different than conviction. You may feel like, how could I come before the Lord. I've been Cosby. I've been Zimri. I've been Balaam. I knew it. I've screwed up. I'm second rate. I'm not holy like those other people. And if this is part of your story and your past, I would say to you, no, that is not true. It is part of your story, 
But the Bible says in Romans 8, which we just heard, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not something that Jesus is holding against you or me. If you brought that to him, it's under the blood of Jesus and you're free. And one of the things I love about this story, how was the plague stopped in Israel? What happened? Not a trick question. A spear. Yeah, there was a piercing truth revealed at that moment that somebody had to die. That was another bad pun. You guys, I'm trying so hard here. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to be pierced for that sin, for that transgression. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 that God sent someone to do that for us so it wouldn't have to be you or me in the place of Zimmer. Yeah, I deserve that. If you go back over the course of my life, I could tell you stories. I deserve to die and go to hell and be separated from God forever, but I won't. And it isn't because I've done anything good or made up for it. It's because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. And listen, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, yours and mine, your past and mine, completely paid for by Jesus. Someone did die, and his name was Jesus, and he was pierced through. And may I just draw this point a little finer. If sexual sin has been a part of your story, remember the story from John 8. These guys bring to Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they go through this whole thing. He says, hey, the first one among you pick up stones and throw it at her. And, and they don't. And he's left alone with the woman. And he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, what? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If that's part of your past, you need to know. How could Jesus say that? Isn't he failing to deal with sin? Isn't God holy? No, he's, of course God's holy. Jesus could say that because he himself was going to go and die for that very sin on the cross just days later. Maybe years later, I suppose. I'm missing my timeline. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the promise. So if that's part of your story, friend, welcome. Don't be condemned. Jesus has been pierced, driven through for you and for me. And that sin is paid for and gone. And there's no condemnation for you or I. So... Let's stand. I think the worship team's coming back up. Yeah? Okay. Guys, I'll just recapitulate this thing real fast. Stand up with me really fast. Number one, if you are feeling pretty cocky, you're coming off a win streak, and there's some really nice attractive stuff happening in your life, but it looks like it might be compromised, run. Get out of there. It's a trap. It's a trap. Man, if you're in it right now, cut that sucker off. Cut that right hand off if you got to do it. Save your life and the lives of people around you. And man, if you've come through that, and most of us have come through something like that, you need to know this today. Jesus has been pierced, and you are free. And if you're also here, I should always remember, if you're here and you have not placed your faith in Christ today, you're still carrying around that guilt, you're still trying to pay for stuff you've done, or you're thinking you're good, my friend, please, today, let this be the day you decide, Jesus, I got stuff that I know I've done that's not right, and I'm coming to you because I do believe that you died, and you died for me. And you can pay. You have paid for my sin, and I could be free, and I could learn what it's like to walk in that newness of life that we see in Romans 6. This could be your day of new birth and freedom. So, man, come up and get prayed for. If you got something, and go out of here in victory and freedom today. That's what Jesus came to bring. He came to set us free. So don't be subject again to a yoke of bondage. All right. Lord, easy to preach. Easy to preach, I guess. Um, but hard to do. Always, always hard to do following you. But you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word and by your spirit. 
I'd like to just ask, uh, Lord, if there's any that don't know you, that today would be the day you would, can, you would to your, their own heart, say, yeah, you need me, and I've done this for you, and you can be free. I'd love it. It'd be sweet. I pray, Lord, that we would not ignore any warnings from you, that if your spirit is laying your hand right now on an area of our heart or life that we know needs to go, and we've been trying to manage it, we got stuff we need to dump down the toilet or, or, or uh, delete or people we need to cut out of our lives because it's not right. Give us the courage today to follow through and do it. And Lord, for any today that may be walking in or the enemy has been beating them up, convincing them they're never going to change or that this uh, sin that they committed is so great that you kind of think of them as the redheaded stepchild or something. Today, Lord, may they know your love. May they know that you were pierced for them, that you were crushed for them, that you took that sin and they stand before you as righteous as Jesus, a miracle. And may we walk out in freedom, glorifying you and pointing others who need the same message to you in Jesus' name. Amen.